0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, October 7th, and here's what we're gonna talk about this week.
1: NIH, FDA, HeLa cells, SPACs. It's been
2: another pack week of news in the life sciences, and we're gonna discuss it all. Also, Martin Shkreli. There's a new documentary about him out this week, and we talked to the film's director. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's Chief Diversity Officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change.
2: Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, The need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash ask bigger questions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash ask bigger questions.
0: So, guys, um, a lot of news from Washington and not all of the reconciliation, debt ceiling, et cetera, stuff that luckily as health reporters, we don't have to pay too much attention to. We are talking about NIH director Dr. Francis Collins announcing his retirement uh, sometime before the end of the year and also the ticking clock down to when the president needs to nominate an FDA commissioner. Um, Adam, can you break down like what the whole situation is with both of these positions?
1: Well, yeah, like you said, Francis Collins announced this week that he's going to step down from uh, being the director of the National Institutes of Health. So, of course, when that happens, you know, the speculation starts about who uh, will replace him. Uh, And our stat colleague, Lev Fasher, wrote a story uh, this week about kind of just looking at some of the candidates that have been thrown out there. And I think the most interesting one is Jennifer Doudna, the biochemist, uh, you know, and Nobel Prize uh, winner, uh, most closely associated, obviously, with CRISPR.
0: Yeah, I thought the Jennifer Doudna suggestion was just totally fascinating. Also having uh, read or actually listened to the Walter Isaacson book, The Codebreaker, about Doudna, it, it did kind of make it seem like in some ways she was sort of looking for her next big thing to do, um, although she's very involved in many different things. So who knows if she would want to like leave what she's doing uh, in California and go run the NIH. The other interesting aspect of it, of course, is Eric Lander uh, of The Bro. Who has a history with Doudna over CRISPR, and who, as Biden's science advisor, will have a big role in deciding who potentially takes this position?
2: Yeah, so you know, as, as you mentioned, that those are two institutions in the Broad Institute and the University of California who uh, were quite recently in court uh, over just who invented. Uh, the technology that is CRISPR, and of course, Doudna won the Nobel Prize. So there is like a fun kind of scientific potential, frictiony backstory there. But the other thing I thought was interesting, you know, based on on our colleague Left story, talking to folks about about you know what kind of names are already floating around, is, you know, I wonder if there's a chasm between scientific celebrity, the the Jennifer Doudnas, the Lori Glimchers of the world, and the kind of person who would want to lead a huge bureaucracy, one that is unfortunately uh, subject to the whims of the American political system and are not always efficacious Congress. So, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if they do offer this position to some of those headline names, whether they're able to get a yes or whether the person they end up with might be someone more like a Francis Collins who and this is not me denigrating his scientific resume but who I think is more the personality type to uh to do this sort of thing than maybe the kind of person that that we've heard um bandied about so it'll be interesting to watch moving forward as to whether they're able to land some of these massive names that have that have so far been floated
1: And as Meg alluded to at the top of this, uh, the clock is also ticking on uh, interim FDA commissioner
0: Janet Woodcock. Yeah, Adam, I wonder if you can kind of explain that whole countdown phenomenon, because there is supposed to be a date by when the president nominates an fda commissioner right
1: yeah so all of this is uh regulated by the federal vacancies reform act of 1998. um and basically that this says that you know you can only be an interim head of an agency for uh, 210 days. So just really what's important here is that for Jenna Woodcock, her like technically her last day, the last day that she can be interim FDA commissioner is November 15th. But of course, like with all laws written uh by Congress, there are tons of loopholes here. Um, One being that like if they name a new commissioner before then, then Janet could stay on, you know, until that new commissioner is confirmed by Congress. Um, there's all kinds of like... It, and and I was looking at a, a research note about this the other day and you know there's all kinds of like exceptions and also just it seems like past administrations have just basically ignored the vacancies reform act and there's no consequences like a slap on the wrist. So it does it's not really clear whether November 15th is actually going to be Janet Woodcock's last day um although there have been, I guess in the last few days there have been some, signs, hints that maybe something is happening, and that maybe Biden is getting ready to announce a, a a nominee for FDA commissioner. So we'll have to stay tuned to that.
0: I heard it's an uncontroversial pick. Is it you, Adam?
2: <laughs>
1: no comment, Meg.
2: <laughs> so another fascinating story in the intersection of science, business, and, and in this case, the law, is the family of Henrietta Lacks, who, you know, famously is the woman who's whose cells have been cloned trillions of times and have become a cornerstone of biological research over many, many decades, the family is suing the company Thermo Fisher Scientific, um, claiming that they have broken the law in in using those cells in their business. And they claim that lawsuit is the first of many they plan to mount against uh, companies in the life sciences industry. Meg, what did you learn uh, talking to the family?
0: Yeah, so I got to talk with Ron Lax, who's Henrietta's grandson, as well as one of the attorneys representing the estate of Henrietta Lax, Ben Crump. And a lot of folks will know Ben Crump from the George Floyd trial. Um, And so he's a prominent civil rights attorney. And this is a really interesting case. Um, They're essentially saying these cells were taken without Henrietta's knowledge or consent, and uh, the family is essentially owed profits from uh, what Thermo Fisher has uh, earned from selling this cell line, um, and they've said there are hundreds of corporations that have identified that have profited from selling products developed using HeLa cells. Um, you know, I I talked with some legal experts and some bioethicists, and. On the legal merits of the case, they don't seem to think this will, you know, go through and end up with a verdict necessarily in favor of the family. But what they do think is that the family, the bioethicist I spoke with, thought the family is owed something um, and that the the suit's impact might be to see these companies establish some kind of funds for the family or for causes that they care about. And some of that has already been done. Um, but it, it's just a fascinating case because it's been 70 years and these cells are just everywhere. The polio vaccine, the uh, HPV vaccine, HIV research, even, you know, understanding how the coronavirus infects cells, HeLa cells were used to do that. And, um, It's just such a fascinating case. And Thermo Fisher has been completely silent on it, not calling you back, not responding to emails. Yes, it's a bad headline for them. But at some point, I think they're going to have to address it, you know, if not just in court. And so we'll see um, how they respond.
1: You know, I think the story first gained prominence, you know, when uh, Rebecca Skloot wrote the book, you know, The the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks uh, a bunch of years ago. And you know, I think that kind of brought the story to life. I, I, a lot of people didn't know about this. And, and I think you're right, Meg. This seems like, you know, sort of ethically, morally, like there should be some fund. There should be some sort of compensation to the family, you know, even if... Legally, like the merits of the case on on a legal basis, is maybe not there, and and maybe you know that's kind of this is the launching pad for for something like that to happen.
0: So another big story in our space this week uh, concerned Ginkgo BioWorks, um, and a short report that came out that really affected the company's stock, uh, whose ticker, remember, is DNA. Damien, can you fill us in?
2: Yeah, so you know Ginkgo, for people who may recall, is a synthetic biology company, and, and the basic premise there is that they can use customized cells to produce drugs sure but also agricultural products foods building materials i'm not up to date on the list but the whole idea is basically turning biology into a programmable thing and such that, you know, revolutionizing the process of manufacturing, your mileage may vary with the potential there, and there is certainly a lot of variance, but Ginkgo recently went public through a SPAC deal at a valuation of about $15 billion and has since risen to, I think, as high as $23 billion. A lot of money is the point. And so that's the backdrop for a short report from Scorpion Capital, a 175-page uh, treatise on what Scorpion perceives as major flaws in Ginkgo's business. And, you know, the short version, Meg, as you mentioned, is that it sent Ginkgo's stock price down as much as 20% uh, on Wednesday as people got a chance to read it. I believe they recovered and were down about 12%, and there's been a lot of fighting on the internet. But having perused all 175 pages, I thought it was interesting because, you know, short reports come in a lot of different varieties. Sometimes they've done sort of swashbuckling uh, private investigations of their own. Sometimes they've done... Um, They've uncovered scientific malfeasance is, is some that we've seen in the recent past. And what was curious about the Scorpion one is that for the most part, what Scorpion did was go through Ginkgo's public filing. So information that anybody could have had and synthesized it into a narrative that basically they say Ginkgo's business is deeply reliant on getting money from companies in which Ginkgo has a stake. So basically there's a process by which Ginkgo will invest in a startup of some sort um and the money that they invest is basically ginkgo bucks like it can only be used for paying for ginkgo services which then ginkgo recognizes as revenue and in the eyes of scorpion that's a really bad sign related party transactions suggest that this is kind of uh, not a ponzi scheme per se but that this is a machine that is kind of a snake eating its own tail let's say and thus the growth is inflated so Ginkgo, you know, obviously they dispute that characterization, but they don't deny that this is a cornerstone of their business. And, you know, the CEO put out a statement basically saying, we want biotech companies to be as easy to start as websites. And that's why we, you know, do this thing where our, our customers get access not only to our technology, but to our capital, blah, 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 blah. So why why are we talking about this? Why did it have such an effect on the stock price is what I've been more interested in. I think it's kind of a combination of the Ginkgo valuation is so high um, the company's story comparing itself to amazon web services and and you know anything where people talk about the complexity of biology in the terms that are usually used for the relative simplicity of software i think that tends to raise eyebrows around this industry so it does feel like people were kind of waiting for a shoe uh, to drop when it comes to ginkgo and this short report kind of in in combination with The very good story by Antonio Regalado in MIT Tech Review, I think in August, which raised many of these same concerns, um, it it seems to be kind of a gathering storm of skepticism about Ginkgo. But, you know, the the company, I think, as of this morning is worth now only, what, $19 billion. So they they continue relatively unscathed. But it is something to watch.
1: Yeah. And I think it's not only an argument over the science of synthetic biology, but also whether synthetic biology is going to be a, a huge business. Uh, and whether Ginkgo can turn synthetic biology into a commercial success and and be a very profitable company that might justify you know evaluation in, in the tens or 20s 20 billion dollars or more to me that was sort of the crux of the short report in that you know they're raising some questions about whether or not you know and it gets kind of dense into sort of the accounting of it um, but whether they're the revenue that they're going to be able to generate as a company that that basically uses these cells to to help build things, whether that will be uh, successful. Because at the end of the day, you know, Ginkgo, uh, they're sort of a tools company, a service provider. You know, they're not actually going to be, m- you know, making and selling all of these things. They're going to help other companies make and sell those things. And so, um, that's where the debate lies. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of Valiant. Do you guys remember Valiant <laughs> as sort of the roll up pharmaceutical company, finding all these drugs, raising the price? Um, you know, that was a new and innovative business model that was, you know, embraced by investors in Wall Street. Um, and then it fell apart. Uh, and I don't want to say that Ginkgo is going to sort of follow in the footsteps of Valiant, but it does sort of remind me of that, of that a little bit.
0: Well, I'm sure that's not a comparison that Ginkgo would appreciate. And we should note, (laughs) Jason Kelly, the CEO of Ginkgo, responded on Twitter um, to this short report. And I guess people were using the the ticker DNAQ, suggesting they were going to go bankrupt. Is that what that means?
1: Yes, exactly. Like Tesla, like Tesla Q. Exactly.
0: He wrote, I'd been waiting for DNAQ to show up, smirky face. Give the old Tesla Q people something to do. Sticking his tongue out emoji. Um, Which in some ways is like a humble brag response yeah. where he's like, haha, we're just like Tesla. We're going to be $300 billion company or whatever they are.
2: So we are many minutes into this podcast without acknowledging that, of course, there is still an ongoing pandemic. And and Meg, there has been a lot of news on the therapeutic vaccine regulatory and scientific fronts in COVID-19. Um, Can you give us a quick rundown?
0: This is going to be... A very busy month um, when it comes to COVID, especially vaccine regulations. So the latest is today. Pfizer said it had finished submitting its filing for kids ages 5 to 11 uh, for its vaccine um, submission for EUA. And the FDA has scheduled an advisory committee meeting to evaluate that um, on October 26. So the whole idea of having a vaccine available for kids in this age group by Halloween is still potentially possible. Um, the FDA also scheduled two advisory committee meetings back to back late next week, the 14th and the 15th, to talk about boosters for Moderna on the 14th and Johnson & Johnson on the 15th, as well as the NIH's mix and match data on the afternoon of the 15th. And so we could come out of this meeting uh, essentially with A recommendation from FDA's advisors uh, around mixing and matching boosters, which is just a huge question for this entire space and the future commercial question for Moderna versus Pfizer versus all these other companies that are still hoping to get into the COVID vaccine space. Um, beyond that, on Friday, right after we recorded our podcast, the day after, and we talked about Merck's molnupiravir, the antiviral drug, they put out results from that phase three study we were s- so anticipating. And it showed that- How dare um, them. It we, could re- They
1: could have put it out a day earlier. So we could have talked about it on the podcast.
0: Well, also, I had Merck's CEO on the day before, and I was like, so we're (laughs) expecting those data at some point. And he's like, yes, we are. Apparently, he didn't know about them yet. Um, But anyway, the results showed that um, the drug could reduce the risk of hospitalization or death from COVID by almost 50%. um, And this was all in unvaccinated people, which is interesting. Um, But the study was stopped early because the results were so promising. uh, And now they're moving forward toward EUA submission. And um, I think one of the interesting things about this drug – Is Well, there's many, but there were a lot of questions about the safety early on and um, the idea that it's potentially mutagenic um, and so could cause long-term safety issues around, I guess, potentially cancer or if you give it to people um, who could be pregnant, you know, birth defects and things like that. So I think there will be a lot to consider around that long-term safety um, consideration, but um, in the trial, it looked very mild.
2: Right. And we've talked a lot about the COVID antivirals in development. And I feel like, you know, maybe this is a little bit unfair, but but that Merck treatment when you spoke to scientists was the one people had a little bit of skepticism about. It, it's essentially repurposed um, it isn't necessarily bespoke for SARS-CoV-2, but its success in this clinical trial seems like it would bode particularly well for the other antivirals we've discussed from Pfizer and from a company called Atia, which you know might be that little bit more specific to, to this virus. So it really does seem to be good news, but we'll get those data on those other two drugs uh, in the months to come. You might remember that in the months before he was convicted of securities fraud, Martin Shkreli spent hours and hours live streaming his thoughts on YouTube. You could have been forgiven for checking out of the Shkreli story around then, but one documentary filmmaker was recording Martin's every utterance. Brenton Hodge spent
1: years chronicling Shkreli's downfall, and his documentary, Pharma Bro, is out this week on streaming services, including iTunes and Amazon Prime. Here's a clip of the trailer. Anybody has the power to become famous by doing something destructive. Mr. Skrulli, do you think you've done anything wrong? I invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and respectfully decline
2: to answer your question.
0: And Brent joins us now to talk about the film. Brent, welcome to the podcast.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.
2: So, Brent, as we mentioned, you know, the movie really tracks, um, really the beginnings of Martin Shkreli, but a lot of the footage comes from that really key period uh, when he's on trial and not to spoil anything when he's eventually convicted. But I was curious, you know, you're there at the courthouse throughout this film and, and and following Martin for for these many months. What drew you to the Shkreli saga that made you want to kind of upend everything and spend so much time with this guy?
3: It was honestly the Wu Tang album for me that kind of drew me in. I think before that, I, I didn't pay any attention to him. I just thought he was this evil guy who was talking to the media like trash and whatever. There was no there was no reason to do a movie. But then when he bought that album, everything kind of he like embedded himself in pop culture a little more, whether we liked it or not. He was kind of there. Uh, so that's that's where I clued in. Was like, whoa, this guy there's there's like more weird layers to this guy than. And then I thought, and then also just within, as you you guys probably know, within like a few Google clicks, you could get talking to him. You could just go on his live stream and he'll tell you where he is and he'll tell you his phone number. And I was like, why isn't nobody here? Why can't we just, we should just be recording this. And so that sort of started it.
1: So what do you feel like you learned about Martin in the making of this film?
3: Oh my God, it's a good question. I think I learned that he is... Unapologetic. Um, I just wanted to figure out if he was an asshole, like everyone said he was going to be, and I think I got, I got the answer that he is. Um, I also think that he just really wanted to be heard. I think that was that was one thing I realized. Like, why is he why is he live streaming so much? Why is he in the spotlight? Like, no other drug companies put somebody in the spotlight like this. Um, also figured out like he's he's a pretty smart guy, but he's making some really stupid choices. Um, that's I just I just think I sort of saw the downfall of somebody and and watched it in real time as it was happening.
0: I think there was the saddest part of the documentary, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I guess I'm just gonna say it. You go over with some beers like the night I think before he got um, was it uh, the it wasn't sentencing because he was already in prison at that point so it must have been the day before the verdict is that what
3: he had already had his verdict as well kind of switch it around in the film and i'm cool to give it away here like he he as, as everyone knows he went to jail um pretty quickly for asking for a strand of hillary clinton's hair it was the night before that
0: oh wow okay yeah and so you kind of go over and and then it's funny you have like as a filmmaker this must have been just like gold mine to you because he was filming himself and you go over and you bring these beers to him and um he comes back to the live stream and he just kind of offhandedly says like it's nice to have friends in the building and I felt so sad for him in that moment because like you're a filmmaker like you weren't there like being his real friend and he he thought he had a friend and it just kind of made me think like does does he have any friends and like yeah, there's a lot of reasons not to feel bad for Martin Shkreli. But anyway, all of this is to preface a question of, like, were you able to find anyone who was, like, legitimately close to him? Like, there was nobody of his family or, like, his high school or anybody who grew up with him in the film. Was it hard to get close to people like that?
3: Yeah, it was extremely hard. I think that's what took the most time here is, like, I didn't I didn't want to put this film out right away – without sort of some sort of authenticity of who could really speak on him or speak on every subject, by the way. Like when it comes to the biotech, Meg, you're in the film. We have tons of people talking about it. Judith Aberg. Um, When it came to like a patient, like I needed to get outpatient in this. There's so many patients I talked to who didn't want to be on camera. I needed Wu-Tang to talk. I wasn't going to put this out until I got Ghostface. And then when it came to Martin and people in his life, this is what was hard is like his live streams were also performance art. I was like, this isn't a real guy. This isn't actually who he is. He's just performing here just as much as he is in the media. So who is he? And I, I I literally have to move into his apartment building and get to know him. I have to go up to his door, look him in the eyes, try to bring beers and just start talking to him. The problem was uh, that happened. And then the next day he's in jail. And so it, you know, we didn't get as far as we wanted on that. But in terms of getting to know him, I mean, we have a few, we have Billy the Fridge, we have some ex-girlfriends, we have people that knew him before he was live streaming and, and putting on these sort of art shows. Um, so I feel like we, we got as close as you could possibly get. And yeah, I mean, I, like, like you said, it, he, he really did want a friend and it was kind of sad. Um, but also, is that just a performance that he was doing as well? Like the whole thing has so many layers, it's hard to kind of dissect. So Brent, you know,
1: you use Christy Smythe uh, as a narrator and observer throughout the film, uh, but you don't really address, you know, her one-sided romantic relationship with Martin or kind of the, you know, what what the impact of that was on her journalism career, you know, except there's that small reference at the end of the film. Um, Was that a conscious decision on your part? I interviewed her four
3: years ago. (laughs) So she was still with her husband. She was still... I interviewed her the same week that I interviewed Meg. Like this, this interview with Christy Smythe was... Uh, and I allude to it a little bit and you'll see it in the teaser of like, do you like Martin? Like it was a, it was a genuine curiosity of, I was sitting down with a Bloomberg journalist who was going to tell me about facts because she's one of the people who, um, sort of, uh, initially reported that he was being looked into by the FBI. That's all I knew about this person when I was interviewing her. Mm -hmm. When I got there, she was like describing his ex-girlfriends and who he was and, a lot more about him that i was like wait this is this is crazy like you you know so much more i have pressed her since to say like were you actually dating him at the time is it sort of like an unbiased interview that we did and she said no she was still going through her her journey so i, I gotta take her word for it but yeah it was a long time ago so that's why we didn't really i never pressed on a relationship because i didn't even know there was, was one uh mm-hmm. her relationship and 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 that kind of coming out in the news is, is one of the main reasons this movie finally sold Um, it took a really long time. People don't like Martin Shkreli's story. People don't want to attach themselves to Martin Shkreli's story. It was by far the hardest film I've ever had to sell. And, uh, as soon as that happened, it was like another layer to this guy and he's back in the media. And that's actually when we did a lot of our sales.
1: So so you're talking about the the revelations, you know, I guess it was that Elle magazine story and the like that, you know, kind of talked about or revealed her deeper relationship, her romantic relationship with Martin and kind of the impact that it's had on her life.
3: Yeah, been like a year since Martin was really in the news. Like he's just he's in jail and there's no real reason to report about him. Um, maybe some biotech stuff. I know he had his new companies and he's getting a contraband phone from jail and running stuff, but that's just that's sort of like him running amok. It's nothing to really report on. But when this came out again, it was like it resurfaced this guy and people sort of read about him. Um and that's when we like actively went and pitched the movie. So uh, thanks Christy I guess <laughs> like it's a it was sort of a it was a, it like reignited this this fire um, of who this guy is and sort of remembering him and putting him in the spotlight
2: that's interesting I mean you know it's clear there's so much footage that you're working with between the obviously the interviews but then his his endless live streaming and you know his personal biography versus the sort of character he's playing online when you were editing this all together into a narrative were there parts of the Martin story that you decided to or felt like you had to leave out in the process, and if so, you know how how did you kind of winnow that
3: down? There's sort of this like, like back and forth between the good and the evil elements of it, and you're like, okay, I only have, I don't think Martin's story is more relevant than a 90 minute film, which we have like 86 minutes. It's like, how do we get rid of parts? And I think we don't. I wanted to focus on things like how he bought the domain name of journalists versus his philanthropy work, which may or may not be even true. So there was. There was people we cut out, there was, a, there was a a, doctor that he had given some money to in Vancouver for some research and it was like a philanthropy effort. And I was like, I don't need this guy. Like we have enough people saying great things about Martin in this that I don't need to show all in every aspect of it. Um, there was a whole element of bro culture that I really wanted to dive into. We just didn't have time. I just felt like you know, started making this in 2015, 2016 and like the world has really changed since then. Um, if you, if you look at cancel culture and Me Too movement and everything, like there's a lot of sort of stuff that uh, we wanted to dive into, just sort of timing-wise cut out. So there there was no rhyme or reason of what we cut out. I just felt like the flow kind of worked through. Um, I would have loved to include a little more trial. I think we sort of went pretty fast on that. But I also think like the the Orphan Drug Act and going into a little bit more of that, that part of thing. like we, we dumbed it down so that any regular viewer doesn't feel – that they can't watch it. Um, and I would have loved more patients. I interviewed so many patients and none of them wanted to come on camera for various reasons. And I totally understand why. Um, but that, that's where I wanted to go. I felt like all these articles were coming out about Daraprim and, and about Toxo. And there weren't a lot of patients being, uh, being interviewed. And I get it. Like they don't want to disclose their status. A lot of them are sick. I understand why they would never want my cameras in their house, but that was a part that I wanted to get.
0: Well, I think the patient you did get was so powerful. And and that was an issue for me covering the story in real time, you know, when when the first the price increase first came to light. And it probably was an issue for Damien and Adam, too, was just finding people who are really affected by not being able to access Daraprim. And I, I really think you illustrated that in a very powerful way, both through that story of the guy who showed the day he showed up at the pharmacy counter and he was told his Daraprim was going to cost... $30,000. And I think you asked per year. And he said no per month. And it was just like, whoa. And and I think that really and along with the interview you did with the doctor from Mount Sinai, I just felt like you put together the the bro culture, which I think I mean, the entire film to me was about bro culture uh, with when that comes into contact with something so serious as public health and like the fact that our country allows those things to knock into each other in this way, to me, that's the damage of of Martin Shkreli. And like, I don't know, what did you feel like you learned about the drug industry as a result of making this?
3: I mean, you guys are all very educated in the drug industry. Like, I'm a filmmaker who knows absolutely nothing. I'm also Canadian and we we don't have to worry about drug prices <laughs> as much. <laughs> We've got it good. Uh, so for me, it's like, a lot of times I do these films to explore an industry as well and kind of learn something. We did a a really sort of quirky movie about the song who let the dogs out and how there's nine people that claim that they let the dogs out. Um, and it's funny and it's comedic and it's stupid because it's a song that that annoys us all, but it's really just a bigger story about music copyright and like who owns art and can you recreate art and do you own it? And it goes further and deeper. and, And I felt like this is sort of the same. It was an oddball way into the pharmaceutical industry because if martin screlly is an experiment dareprim is still 750 dollars a pill so like we didn't learn anything from him 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 being like subject a of this experiment into pharma so i think like honestly what i learned is that that a lot of the headlines are just sort of bullshit like martin's saying oh we're just attacking insurance companies you're like well Sure. I don't really know the ins and outs of, of how you did that. But all I know is I'm talking to a patient right now that that, that's not what happened. He has the gold plan. He went to try to get his insurance to pay for it and they wouldn't. The only way he could get the drug is because he reached out to you on Reddit and got it, which is absolutely not a a business model for, for this. This is what about the people who don't have computers that are lying sick? Like this is so stupid if he's reaching out to you. And so I, I wanted to showcase that I was so happy Patrick Rice came on camera took a long time to get them on camera like some of these people really didn't want to to talk and I think that's what I learned the most um also just like learned all about these loopholes and uh, and about how they're really they no one's no one's doing anything um about it and the other thing I learned is like Martin's such a small player in all this and he's like one example of many who do it that was crazy and, and Meg we talked about this in our interview of like people are so misinformed they think Martin raised the price of the EpiPen they think He's part of some huge, big pharma. we got to take him down. He's like an indie, he's like an, like an indie band amongst this, this industry. And I think as an outsider, that's what I realized the most.
1: So as we said, Brent's uh, new film called Pharma Bro is out this week and available on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and other streaming services. Brent, thanks for joining
3: us. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me.
2: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose.
2: Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you've watched the Martin Shkreli documentary and what you thought. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.